And so when I write this this book, really the message I want to get across is that we all go through challenges when we least expect or want them, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to all learn how to face them. It doesn't really matter what that challenge is. How we react to it is everything. We are Gold Ivy, a health company dedicated to simplifying health and wellness. The industry is lacking the honest experience and grit required to overcome the struggle. And we're here to fill that gap. You decide what works for your daily life and how to transform our lessons into your gold. Join us on the fearless pursuit of self-discovery and growth. This is Ivy Unleashed, a Gold Ivy production. Hey guys, welcome back. You are listening to Ivy Unleashed. We have an incredible show for you guys today. Yes, and to say that we are overwhelmed with gratitude is an understatement. Brooke and I have been obsessed with a book, which you know because we keep talking about it on almost every <laughs> single episode. But the author of Difficult Gifts is here today, and her name is Dr. Courtney Burnett in the house. Yes, Courtney Burnett is a 30-year-old internal medicine physician living and working with brain cancer in St. Paul, Minnesota. She studied medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois, and completed internal medicine residency at the University of Minnesota. She now works as a chief resident at Regents Hospital and will soon start work as a primary care physician. Courtney's brain tumor journey started in January of 2020 while studying medicine in Thailand. While there, she began to have strange neurological symptoms and diagnosed herself with a brain tumor. Throughout her journey, she used writing as a therapeutic way to cope with her unexpected diagnosis. After starting a blog, which gained an unexpected worldwide following, readers inspired her to write a book. Courtney's first book, a memoir titled Difficult Gifts, A Physician's Journey to Heal Body and Mind, was released in February of 2021. Courtney, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Ivy Unleashed. Thank you so much. You guys, I am so honored and excited to be here. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Ivy (laughs) Unleashed and this is an incredible moment for me. We're fangirling. We are. We're trying to keep (laughs) We're trying to like keep it. Just so it's not awkward because we are major fans. Uh, Yes. And Courtney, one of my favorite things about the book is your physician versus patient perspective of juggling both. Uh, So before we dive in, we want to make it known that the information you hear today should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. We want to encourage everybody to purchase Difficult Gifts. We're going to be diving into all kinds of lessons that you provide in this book. But it's one of those that I don't think, well, I know because I've already read it twice, that you you can't, you could read it once and then two months later need it to check yourself again. There's so many life lessons in it. We love it so much. And the book begins with you as you're about to go on a big adventure. Mm-hmm. You're in Thailand and you think to yourself, I've never been happier mm-hmm. than plot twist. So can you walk our listeners through what happens next? Absolutely, yes. So I, I know that 2020 was, first off, a crazy year for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my 2020 had an added twist mixed into it. So mm-hmm. back at the very beginning of 2020, I had set out to Thailand to do a global health rotation as part of my medical residency. And I was so excited 
I've been going through kind of a rough time in my life. We can get into that more <laughs> more later, but um, and I was really looking forward to just sort of this independent journey where I could really explore the new, the new culture there, explore my spirituality, and learn a whole new type of medicine. And so I went off to Thailand. I was in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai where I was planning to spend about six weeks and was, I mean, it was absolutely wonderful, I'll just say in short, one of the best experiences of my life. The trip was going great. I learned a lot of fascinating aspects of Eastern medicine, um, met a lot of wonderful people there, and really just tried to dive into the culture. And then about three weeks into my journey, I started to have some really strange symptoms. So I was I would be just walking down the street, you know, to go do a little shopping in Chiang Mai or to walk to work. And I would suddenly start to feel my left hand cramping in various ways. And a few seconds later, I would start to feel my throat tightening up, almost like I couldn't swallow at all. Um, It was just constricted. And this would last about 30 seconds to maybe a minute uh, would go away. This happened a couple of times, you know, once or twice, I was like, oh, that was really strange. I must be just kind of having some anxiety. I don't know. Maybe I got stung by a bug. Uh, who knows, mm-hmm. right? It's just bizarre. And then it kept happening over and over, and it would happen in the same the same way every time, happen in this pattern. And so long story made really short <laughs> is that, you know, I in the end realized these could be small seizures. And so that was how the journey of me sort of diagnosing myself with a brain tumor while in Thailand started. Mm-hmm. So you knew from your experience being a physician that, okay, this is something more serious. This could be seizures, but you're in a completely different country. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you know what to do next? You know, you thought to yourself, I should probably get this looked at. Yeah. How did you know what to do, where to go? That's well, such a great question. So I can tell you like the first handful of times that this happened, I did, again, I didn't think mm-hmm. too much of it. You know, it happened a few times. I was out walking. The symptoms started and then they stopped and I never was unconscious, right? I was walking around. I was totally alert, kind of just said, okay, this is weird. If it happens again, I'll get some help. Mm-hmm. And then again, it, it did keep happening. When it really started to get worse was um, I got sick in Thailand with just some sort of cold-like virus and had horrible fevers. And then they started to get worse. And I also was doing, I love yoga. I know you guys have talked about yoga on your mm-hmm. show. I'm a big yoga fan myself, but I was um, going to a yoga studio in Thailand as well. And I was doing headstands. And uh, after doing a headstand, these symptoms came back on. Mm-hmm. So part of the story that you can read more about in Difficult Gifts, but I was finishing up a yoga class, had just done a headstand and was walking down the street and I had to stop in front of a 7-Eleven because I started to feel my hand cramping and then my throat tightening. And that one was scary. Mm -hmm. I tried to drink a sip of water and it just drooled out of my mouth. So gross, but so freaky. I had no idea why that was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the night I realized, okay, this is, these, these are seizures, right? These are happening with fever. They're happening with headstands, with things that would, you know, could be triggers for seizures. And so I sort of, I say I kind of switched from patient to doctor, put on my doctor hat, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I went back to my apartment where I was staying alone in Chiang Mai. And I actually was able to call a couple of my resident colleagues here in Minnesota. And I called them and I thought, I think maybe I'm just going crazy or being anxious, you know, probably being a hypochondriac, but could these be seizures? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, one of my good friends here called one of our neurologists actually at the University of Minnesota and kind of ran my case by by him. Um, and they all agreed, like, yeah, this could be this could be a seizure, so you should get it checked out. Mm-hmm. So then I was more reassured because at the time I don't think I would have gone into a doctor there. I think I would have just kept saying, oh, well, you know, well, 
I'll wait and see if this happens again. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and you were We've only there for that, right? six weeks. Only so there for six weeks, mm-hmm. and, and and I wasn't sick otherwise. You know, these were like these little brief episodes. I thought, oh, I won't worry. But then once I kind of got that reassurance and confirmation that no, you're you're not really you're not going crazy. These are symptoms you should take seriously. I knew I needed to get some help. And shortly after I decided that, these started happening even more. Mm. <laughs> and so um, I was very fortunate that I had been actually working with a doctor in Thailand who was a neurologist. And so I called her, and it was late in the evening in Thailand. I felt so foolish. I'm calling her, and mm-hmm. thinking she's going to say, I'm, I'm totally crazy. She's like, nope, you know what? Thank you for telling me. Come into my clinic in the morning. And she would have me see a colleague since I was friends with her and wanted me to see someone else. Mm-hmm. But essentially that was how it came about that I ended up being a patient in Thailand. And she brought me into the neurology clinic and it was the same clinic I had worked in with a different medical service the week before. (laughs) And I'm sitting there in the lobby as a patient, just my world's all colliding and flipped upside down. And yeah, sat down in the chair and the neurologist started to do an exam. And I'll never forget it because it's an exam I do on my own patients all Mm -hmm. the time. So I sort of knew what he would do. And as we started to do this exam, you know, he's having me do various activities to test different nerves. We realize at the same time that my left hand has some weakness. We kind of look at each other like, well, this is an abnormal exam. This is bizarre. Mm -hmm. And and then he said, yep, you need an MRI. Then it it began. (laughs) Yeah. So you get this MRI done and you hear them talking, right, in a different language and you say, let me, let me see those scans. And you read your own brain scans. So walk us through that moment and what's going in your mind as you're looking at this scan and, and you see what's in front of you. Yeah, that's a great question. And it was such a surreal moment. Mm-hmm. But basically, so after I left this neurology clinic to go get my MRI, first, I'll never forget, I was brought down to this old, it used to be an ambulance, now used as just a transport vehicle because the MRI center was not in the hospital here at this um, hospital in Thailand. It was out at its own location. So I hop in this ambulance with about five other patients going to the imaging center. And many of them are very frail, elderly patients. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to be a doctor. Like these, uh, these people are not going to make it to this imaging center. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> I was panicked. Were you just like, time. where in the world am I? And what am I doing yes. right now? Like, 100%. what is this a movie? <laughs> the whole time. Yes. And I was like, this is very strange. And I was like, okay. You know, I'm just looking at all these patients thinking, what what can I do? What tools do I have on this mm-hmm. ambulance that's no longer an ambulance? <laughs> like if one goes people. down, what am I doing? <laughs> yes. That's all I could think the whole time. And then 10 to 15 minutes later, we get to the imaging center. All the other patients were luckily <laughs> fine. <Thank> God. <laughs> <laughs> Did not have to use any of my skills. And I, uh, we all get out and we sit down in the lobby. And in Thailand, the medical system works very differently. And in some ways, it's, uh, I mean, there's pros and cons to all systems. But in some mm-hmm. ways, I think it's better. Everything is um, laid out very clearly up front. So part of what happens there is that before you get any test, any visit, any medicine, anything done to you at all, you get a bill and you're asked to sign that bill. And so it lays out exactly what your cost will be before anything happens. What if really, you have a heart yeah. attack before you get in there for looking at your bill? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. I feel like I would see what I owed and walk right out. Like, I'm okay. Yeah. Actually, never mind. Yeah. I'm fine. I, oh I hear you. But it's also much less expensive. So okay. There's sure. that. But uh, so I got get my bill, you know, mm-hmm. and they're like, we'll have you sign this before you even get your MRI. 
So I see that they ask me to pay basically the equivalent of $200 for my scan. I'm like, okay, well, that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll sign this. And I tell you that because I thought, okay, now I'm just waiting. I'll get my scan and then I'll get out of here. And they take me about an hour later to get the scan. And I don't know if, you know, if you guys have had MRIs here, uh, our listeners, I'm sure many people have, but MRIs are in the U.S. are, I mean, they're all always claustrophobic. These machines are terrible. Mm -hmm. You're stuffed in this little tiny donut hole machine and it's got super loud noises going all around. But usually here they give you like some relaxing spa music, you know, mm-hmm. some aromatherapy, maybe some anxiety meds and just get you all calm for it. <laughs> Not, Not in Thailand. <laughs> no, no. The, I'll never forget the, the technician was just started. He's like, do you want some music? I said, sure. And he plays this like dance club Thai pop music, just blaring. And <laughs> I'm just kind of giggling like, what, what have I gotten myself <laughs> yeah. into? Um, I'd never had an MRI before. Uh, now I understand why patients fear them because mm-hmm. it was it was horribly claustrophobic. But I lay down in the machine. I'm in there for about 40 minutes listening to this Thai pop music, and I start to have the same symptoms. And then I was like, well, thank goodness I'm doing this because yeah. this is something real. And um, after 45 minutes, the tech comes back in, and he brings out a second bill. And I was thinking he'd say, okay, you're all done. But he brings this bill out, and he says, okay, we need to um, – he didn't speak much English. I, I was going to say, was this yeah. in English? Very, or, okay. Yeah, he spoke a few words. So he said, okay, we need you to sign – this bill. This is the second bill for your surgical planning MRI. And I look at him, kind of just just in shock. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, I, I assume this means you found something. He says, yes. And he couldn't say much else. So I just asked, did you find one spot or two? He says, one. So then I get back in the MRI, spend another 30 minutes or so getting my surgical planning scan, um, just thinking the whole time, okay, what, you know, as a physician, what is my, what we call our differential diagnosis or like our, you know, putting the pieces together, what could this be? Mm-hmm. One brain spot or mass of some kind that's causing these small, what we call partial or focal seizures. <laughs> and so I was going through everything in my mind. I was thinking it must be an infection. That was the number one in my mind. Because you were just in an elephant sanctuary. Would, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that happens. Like, that happens. I've been playing, I've been bathing these elephants in the stream and I was like, how could I have been so careless? How did I, you know, not take precaution? I'd been out where, you know, lots of different Viral illnesses can mm-hmm. be caught um, all, all over, not you know, not being very careful. And so I thought, for sure, this is some sort of terrible brain infection. What have I done? And then I thought, okay, this is old technology. Maybe this is just a smudge on the camera, right? Who knows? Yeah. And then, But then my brain went to, okay, a tumor is, of course, on that list. And so kind of knowing those things, as soon as that scan ended, they went to escort me out of the center. And I was the only physician in the center. And I'd been told by the neurologist earlier that day that he would read my scan the next day and call me if anything was concerning. And knowing that, you know, an infection or a tumor is on the list, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't think that's safe, right? Yeah. I think I need to see that sooner. Mm-hmm. So it was a very strange moment of bravery where I felt like, oh, this is not really my place, but I, I need to see this and I mm-hmm. need to do something. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the tech, I said, you know what? sir, I'm a physician and I need to come and see my scan. And I walk into the room. (laughs) Yeah, this is a moment I could not forget, right? Mm -hmm. I see this huge tumor on my scan (laughs) in my right frontal lobe. I mean, the size of, it's hard to compare with, you know, but it looked to me like a, between a golf ball and a tennis ball. I mean, it was large. (laughs) And there's not much else that could be besides the tumor. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and I will never forget that I just said, crap, I'm going to tell this patient some really bad news because I was in full doctor mode. That's mm-hmm. all I could think. And then I left the center and was like, well, that that's me. Mm-hmm. I'm the patient. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am so sorry that you had to see that and figure that out on your own in a 
other part of the world. And in your book, you explain so beautifully your relationship with your family and their support of you leaving and going and how they were so loving to you. I just can't imagine not having your support system over there. Mm -hmm. And then you live alone there Mm -hmm. and you're in these weird pieces of machinery, like hoping that they're not giving you the information, but you're super smart and figuring it out. Like the way that you write through that story through those moments is like unbelievable. Like you can feel all of your emotions. Mm -hmm. Like you in this book make us feel so happy. I'm like laughing my ass off half of the time and then I'm crying. And then all of a sudden I'm hungry because like you're explaining (laughs) how good all of this food is. I think that it's one thing to go through it, but to be able to put that in a book in writing. I can't imagine how you did that. But, uh, you know, laughing, crying, and hunger, that's life, right? That's that's it right there. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. for sure. And we can feel your fear, the way that you explain it and how you're you're going through these emotions in the moment or whatever. I just want you to know that I think you did such a great job of having the reader feel what it was like in those moments. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And there is some type of magical gift in you that can get this crappy news, can see these scans, and somehow within moments, you're happy, you're grateful. Like you become this patient and you're saying, all I could feel is gratitude. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I would be so pissed and feel like a victim and be screaming and crying. And I just, I just want to ask you about that because Mm -hmm. that is, to us just mind boggling that you find joy and gratitude in these moments. So how do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you, I mean, definitely I had my moments of, Mm -hmm. there have been many moments of crying mixed in with the moments of smiling and gratitude. Um, (laughs) I won't pretend that there haven't been hard moments in this. Of course there have, but um, Mm -hmm. I think that for me, part of, part of what made this made me find the gift in it, the difficult, gift, so to speak, was that um, I was in another place with a culture that looks at illness and death incredibly differently than we do here. And that was 100% what I needed at that time. As I write about in my book and in my blog, I do practice Buddhism myself. So I do have different, some slightly different spiritual views than a lot of our population here. But Mm -hmm. in Thailand, that was the norm. Mm -hmm. And um, people there aren't so afraid of illness and death, it seems. It's sort of integrated into the culture. That's something that is talked about openly, without fear, and it's about finding ways to enjoy the time we have because we should know and we should remember that it's not unlimited, right? We have no idea how much time we have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think partly just being immersed in that culture when I found this out was one of the keys. That's something I couldn't, you know, I, I can't say I would have reacted the same way had I found out the news here. I think another piece of it was, was you know, as, as you all mentioned, I, I do work in medicine and I, um, I've told a lot of others, right, that they'll be sick. And I've seen some people get better. I've seen some people not get better despite what we try to do. And the simple truth is that the only thing medically certain in our life is death. <laughs> I know you asked me about gratitude and I'm getting onto death, but no. I think in my mind, but it is interconnected. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and you talk about, right. It's like, you can't have a left without a right. You can't have joy without suffering. You can't yes. have pain without pleasure. It's, they go hand in hand and mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying in all, in our culture, we don't talk like that because it's uncomfortable and mm-hmm. we don't want to be uncomfortable. And 
over in Thailand, it, it sounds so normal to just say, hey, let's talk about the inevitable. This mm-hmm. is going to happen. And when we know that our time is limited, we can enjoy the moment because we know the next isn't promised. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and well, I, you know, of course, at, at the beginning of this diagnosis, I had so much fear and so much sadness, so many thoughts of why me? I mean, I know we didn't get fully into what I was going through before, but I mentioned it was a hard time to begin with. I was going through a divorce at this point. I was questioning my career choices. It was, there was a lot going on apart from just this news. Mm-hmm. And suddenly now I have a brain tumor on top of mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and, um, and 2020. And 2020. Oh, yeah. Yes. You didn't even know that was about to no, happen. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember I was admitted as a patient in Thailand to their hospital where I'd been working for a couple of nights before I was rushed home on a medical flight. But first they had to stabilize me and make sure I wasn't going to have any more seizures before flying me home. And we don't even need to get into that flight, but the chapter. (laughs) I said to Andrea after I read it, I'm not going to give it away, but I was like, this guy, are you kidding me? It's all real. It's 100% true. Oh my gosh. um, Yes. And moments like that, it's like, where can you find the humor in a crazy situation? Yeah, the chapter on the flight is where you can find it. <laughs> but yeah, and I, you know, I was, I was admitted to this hospital, mm-hmm. and something I'd been wanting to do this whole time I was in Thailand was talk to a monk. And mm. a lot of Buddhist temples will let you just come and chat with the monks for free and ask them any questions you want. And I really just wanted some guidance and kind of to know, well, no, now at this point, many, many things. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Why and how? And, um, but I asked some colleagues to arrange for a monk to stop by and visit me in the hospital. And I'm sitting there, and at this point, I wasn't all that grateful for this diagnosis or happy about it. I Mm -hmm. was crying, and I was pretty miserable. And I sat down with the monk who came to my hospital room, and I just, you know, I told him my story. And he just smiled the whole time looking at me. And he just says, very calmly, his advice to me was to smile and to not cry. And he says, illness and death are a natural part of life. And this happened for a reason. <laughs> and like everything, somehow that, those two sentences, or however many sentences, <laughs> com- was one of the best lessons I've ever learned. I mean, and I've had years and years of medical training and nothing has been quite as important as that lesson. Mm-hmm. Because it's, that's, it's so obvious. It's mm-hmm. common sense, but we don't think about it. And the way he said it to me in such a calm way, like, of course this happens. This happens to all of us and nothing we do can prevent that (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, was just, it just shifted everything in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that point, after hearing that, for whatever reason, I felt like, okay, I, I can handle this. I mean, I can go through this, whether at that point I didn't even know this was a malignant cancer. I just mm-hmm. thought it was a tumor that would need some surgery. You <laughs> Spoiler, no it's cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no idea. But I was still, you know, and, and I thought, okay, I can, I can handle this myself. I know enough about medicine. I can understand that this is a part of life mm-hmm. for all of us in some way. But I was, the worst part was thinking of how my family will handle it, how everyone I love will handle it. And, and that was... That's when I kept crying and I'm saying to the monk, I'm saying, I can handle this. It's not me. I'm worried about mm-hmm. the people I love. Yeah. And uh, he just said, this happened for a reason. And he said, remember to bring joy and bring happiness to all the people around you and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And so that was my inspiration to search for the happiness and the, the joy and gifts that don't always look like gifts at first glance. Mm. The difficult gifts. Yes. <laughs> 
So there's this part in the book that I love because I'm obsessed with bucket lists. I think it's great to have all of these ideas, which I'm sure you laugh at now, pretending that you know how long you're going to live and you know what you're going to be able to do or whatever. But the way that you talked about the bucket list, I need to read this because it's it's so powerful. So strengthening my relationships with the people I love is by far the most important thing in my bucket list. When faced with your own mortality, nothing rings quite so true as realizing that we chase after what we think we lack only to realize too late that we already had it. I realized that day, don't just plan your bucket list, live it every single day. And like gave me chills. I think I started crying. I could cry right now because <laughs> it's so true. I like, I thought this this morning, I was like editing and working in the basement and I could hear my kids laughing upstairs and I came upstairs and Justin's playing a board game with them. And I'm like, this is what Courtney's talking about. Like put the work away and live every day. Like this is the kind of stuff that when I am on my deathbed, who knows when that's going to be, mm-hmm. I'm going to be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Not like jumping out of an airplane. Right. You know, I'm going to be thinking about my kids being little and laughing with them. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's <laughs> it so emotional thinking about this, but it's so important. It is so, it is. And it's so true. And I, and, and I'm glad that you read that passage and it brings me back to where I was when I was writing that because it was shortly after um, my second brain surgery. So I ended up having two, two brain surgeries shortly after getting back from Thailand spaced about a month apart. And after the second one, we, we learned that this was indeed a, a very malignant brain cancer. And so I had learned at that point, um, really shortly after the diagnosis, that I would need chemotherapy and radiation for quite some time. That one, and I, you know, I won't say that I reacted with a smile immediately to that <laughs> news. I was definitely uh, quite upset for a while. And it, yeah, at that point, I wasn't even 30. And uh, <laughs> And I remember thinking, okay, I guess I should make a, a bucket list, right? Uh, this is this is serious. And they weren't sure at this point yet what what exact stage my cancer was. And so it was either as in I should say great brain cancer is very confusing. It's actually quite understudied and underfunded. So shout out for brain <laughs> cancer awareness. But um, uh, other cancers are usually talked about as far as stages. Like stage mm-hmm. four cancer would be the most severe for many forms of cancer. Brain cancer is talked about in grades. So um, grade three or grade four are more severe malignant brain cancers. They knew I at least had a grade three. They were worried I had a grade four. And so I got this news. And keep in mind, this was um, now mid-pandemic. And so I was at this doctor's appointment where I found out this news with no one. Visitors weren't allowed into the hospital. My second brain surgery, I was there just completely alone. (laughs) A very, very surreal. um, But... Why I, why I say all that is because I learned this news and I was sitting there in my apartment alone, not wanting you know to call anyone to come over during a pandemic when I had just been a patient in the hospital, sitting there realizing I may have a grade four brain cancer at age 29. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we'd, I'd been joking with friends earlier that year, I meant to write a 30 under 30 list, right? Just something fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm like, I guess I'm writing my life bucket list. And I sat down literally with a a pad of paper and a pen to write a bucket list. And I started to write down trips. It's all like come mm-hmm. to my mind. And as I'm writing it, I'm realizing if this is a grade four brain cancer, I have months to live mm-hmm. and we can't travel. It's a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just started to cross off everything I'd put on my list. And then it occurred to me that those are not the important things on the list. Yeah. So that's when I looked at my dog who was snuggling at my feet. Right. And I, <laughs> FaceTimed my friends and I 
decided to go see, you know, see my parents safely outdoors. And mm-hmm. yeah, and it was those moments watching, you know, telling jokes with my friends and family and reading my favorite books and snuggling with my dog. Those were the things that were really on my bucket list. And probably embracing each other and having conversations that are way more meaningful than you normally would. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think about that where you call it a gift, like that time it was like so joyous that they were just so happy to have you back mm-hmm. and have moments with you. Mm-hmm. You were just across the world. You're in the midst of a pandemic. You keep getting the worst news. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure they were afraid to answer their phone when you called like, oh my gosh, what else is going to yep. you know, come? Yes. And her. for a while, it was every time I called a family or friend for months, it was always more bad news. And I remember, oh, it was so hard. It was so hard mm-hmm. for me to that's partly where the writing actually started from because it was so hard to just keep calling with bad news. I thought I need to write and add in some, you know, that's how I really coped with my own emotions through all of this. I kept thinking too, while I was reading it, like this was last year. <laughs> like I feel like when you read a book, it's usually like a decade old or at least a couple years old. And I'm like, she was going through this last March. Like what? Yeah. Like it's, it's wild. It's also wild paralleling to, COVID and the pandemic and what people are learning now Mm -hmm. being isolated of what's really important. Mm -hmm. And you have this quote in your book about, you know, we are figuring out what it's like to live as a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great question. I think, you know, this year, as we've all witnessed, we've had to learn, right? I mean, our lives have been flipped upside down when we didn't expect it. And I think that that's how a cancer patient lives. I mean, all of the time, right? A a patient with cancer, a person with cancer, we never know, will I be, you know, when, what year will be my last, right? We never know, will I be able to do that next trip? Will that next scan be clear? Will I be around for this event, X, Y, Z, right? It just, Mm -hmm. the list goes on. There's so much uncertainty all of the time. And I think that's what 2020 was for a lot of us who have never had to live like that before. It was like, we don't know when we'll get to see our family next, if if ever, right? Especially for our elderly family who are in nursing homes right. and may have caught COVID. Um, we don't know when we'll be able to travel. We don't know if we'll get to go to that wedding or if it will ever happen, right? There's so much uncertainty. And yeah, and that's really how a patient with cancer lives all the time. Yeah, and you have a, a beautiful quote where you say you switched the question of when will I get to, to today I will. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to know that that's something I think of every day. When I wake up, right, I, I know you listen and you hear about my morning struggles <laughs> and you've made it in my morning routine of I'm my, <laughs> my feet hit the floor and I'm like, thank you. Like, what am I going to do today? Like, how am I going to make today a gift? Because yes. it is so true. Like, stop asking yourself, when will I get to? Because who the hell knows? Yeah, like, that may knows. never come. Mm-hmm. What you have is you woke up this morning, you have the next 24 hours, and you can control what you do with it. Yep. And I, you do such a beautiful job of people read this book and they're, they're checking themselves. Like <laughs> you're damn right. I do. All right. Yeah. Right. No. And that's exactly it. Right. You live each day. Like you don't know if you get more days. Mm-hmm. So the days you wake up and you get to see the sun and you get to drink your cup of coffee, right. You get to take a shower without a shower chair, which I learned is a really wonderful thing. <laughs> I mean, these are things that I just took for granted every day and now I never will again. Yeah. yeah. And after your, I think it was your second surgery, you have another quote saying it was nine days after your surgery. And you said, I have legs, use them. Mm-hmm. And ran a 5k. Yeah. <laughs> like what? My legs still worked, right? No excuse not to. Great. I'm going to remember that next time I'm training for something. 
And I'll, I hate running. I'm sorry. Yeah. I do. I'm not a runner. Well, it, you start your book <laughs> off saying that your whole life, mm-hmm. you, you looked at it and you, um, you lived it from this marathon perspective mm-hmm. of not slowing down and enjoying the scenery and being yeah. go, go, go. And yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that of, all right, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to have this career. And what's, what's the next? next? Yes. And I'm, you know, as I think many of us can relate, I've, I've always, was always very type A, very mm-hmm. checklist based. Like I, you know, I've checked off these things. Now I have these things. This will fulfill my next five years, right? <laughs> Here's yeah. what I'm going to do. But yeah, we don't, I don't know if I have five years. So I'm um, no. And what can I do today that will be impactful and will help someone? I do have one question about you not being a runner. (laughs) How does one fail elementary PE? (laughs) I still don't know, but if my elementary PE teachers are listening, I'm sorry because I was a horrible student. (laughs) All right. Hard left here. This chapter 40, impermanence can be beautiful. You start each chapter with a quote, and I love this one from the Dalai Lama. Some people, sweet and attractive and strong and healthy happen to die young. They are masters in disguise, teaching us about impermanence. And impermanence is, it's in this book all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big message. And so what I really want to hear from you, and I've been waiting for this moment, (laughs) I can't believe I get to sit with you while you talk about it, is just what is impermanence? Mm -hmm. And how do you stay at peace through all of these different circumstances you've been through? Yeah. It's a great question, and I hope I do it justice in answering it. Um, I think, you know, to start off, again, I, I view impermanence, which is a term used very frequently in, in Buddhist philosophy. And I know, you know, this is, I talk about it a lot in my book, but I definitely don't write the book with the intention of only speaking to a Buddhist audience. Mm-hmm. I try and write about ideas that, you know, I've learned through the Buddhist perspective, but I think are very relatable you do. I mean, faith you I'm Christian. No faith. Yeah, yeah, I feel like you did, and you would even address it sometimes. You'd be like, "I am not trying mm-hmm. to offend anybody," mm-hmm. and I do think that this what I've learned can apply to everyone. Right. Right. Exactly. And so that's. So I'll start off by saying that because I think the term in in and of itself is a, a Buddhist term that at least that's where it's used most frequently and how I learned of it. But the idea of impermanence can be applied everywhere. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a strange word, right? But mm-hmm. literally nothing is permanent is all it is saying. And I think that um, often we, it is easy to think of things as permanent, you know, think of especially good things to think of the life we have. This is how it will be forever to think of the job we have. You know, we have, succeeded in our career and this is how it will always be when we get that perfect relationship it will always be this good right Mm -hmm. there are so many things and I think that to look at things with the lens of impermanence not in a negative way not like this relationship is bound to end or you know I'm going to lose this job it doesn't always have to be such drastic but okay the way I'm feeling will not be the same Mm -hmm. forever and that's just a guarantee and I think I now look at everything in my life through a lens of impermanence. And I think the way that this can be applied just to our everyday life, it's sort of how I view the idea of the, the big topic of mindfulness, which is just such a hot topic all over right now right, mm-hmm. for so many reasons. But I think impermanence plays into that. And I'm just going to give kind of an analogy of how I think of impermanence. As I think of, start with just thinking about your own mind and picture that your mind is a clear blue sky, right? When you look outside today, there's a couple of clouds, right? Those are our thoughts, those are things that pass in to our mind, which is a clear blue sky, and they'll leave, right? We know that even when the sky is cloudy, 
underneath it, the sky is still the same clear blue sky that it always is. And that is what impermanence and mindfulness mean to me, is that thoughts come and go, feelings come and go, everything will change. There will be clouds that blow through the sky, but underneath it, if you have, are you, if you're able to find a level of peace and happiness with your own mind and your own life, you can know that that blue sky, that happiness is always there, no matter what's coming and going on top of it. And you say in the book, why be the bird mm-hmm. when you can be the sky? Mm-hmm. And I think that beautifully sums it up. Thank you. So with emotions coming and going, new ones that mm-hmm. you've never had to experience, <laughs> you know, how have you, and you even say in your book, like I had to retrain my brain because I was fresh out of surgery to learn how to handle new emotions. And like, how did that even work? Like, how do you train yourself? Which I think a lot of people avoid dealing with emotions. Mm-hmm. So I feel like anybody could take something mm-hmm. from this. Yeah. How did you retrain your brain to handle these emotions, especially since they were so big? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think the way I kind of thought about it, and there's, I won't say this as if it's medical advice, because I, I'm not a neurologist or a surgeon and don't know enough about it to do it justice medically. Mm-hmm. But there are some studies that show that after brain surgeries or big brain injuries, that your emotional processing is a little bit thrown off for a while and it's transient. It usually, it can last a few months and then you sort of start to fall back into your normal habits of processing emotions. But people can become um, emotional in ways that they, they don't expect after a brain injury of any kind. And the way I, you know, relate it to in my own kind of summarizing of this is, you know, if you were to imagine you fell and you hurt your knee and you needed a knee surgery, after your surgery, you're going to need to sort of retrain with physical therapy, et cetera, to learn how to walk again normally. Sort of the same with, in my view, your brain. You know, mm-hmm. you've had a big insult to your brain and you have to kind of retrain yourself in a way how to process things that are so everyday. Um, emotions are a big part of it, but even such things as like your sensory input. Like mm-hmm. after my first surgery, lights were bright and la- sounds were loud. Everything was just big <laughs> and scary. Yeah. And then emotionally, that was also the case. Is like things that maybe I could have process easily would make me cry, you know, at a, without any advanced warning. Were you able to know that you were off? Like, obviously you had the surgery, so you, you know, you're recovering, but were you thinking like, this is my truth. This makes me upset. Or like, I'm actually really upset because I'm not able to process things like I used to. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think hard to know. I mm, mean, yeah. hard to know. I think that there were times when I would feel upset and I would think, well, of course I'm upset. I've just found out I have brain cancer, right? And this is, this is, and I think it is healthy to express your emotions. And, you know, I'm not trying to say with my, my own philosophy that everything should be a smile and everything should be happy. That's not the case at all. Right. Mm -hmm. I think emotions and expressing them are important, but there definitely is some, um, aspect of, of, you know, I struggled at times to get my mind to go back to that clear blue sky analogy, right? It was, it was hard for me to see through all the clouds, um, at times. And so, it was a process for me of, of learning, you know, how can I cope with all of these emotions that I'm feeling, some of which are definitely warranted and some of which are just perhaps me being, you know, fresh out of surgery and on new medication and all sorts of out of whack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> COVID and Everything. isolation. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. Right. We can all relate to that and feeling, you know, emotional highs and lows we did not expect after this year. For me, I think a big part of it was writing. That was how I really was able to kind of process everything. And also, again, being mindful and meditating. And I am a big proponent of meditation. 
But I say that with a caveat is that I, I don't meditate sitting on a meditation cushion in a quiet room. (laughs) I meditate by being mindful. I meditate by thinking of certain things as I'm washing dishes and Mm -hmm. lying down to go to sleep. I think it's a very active meditation, but Mm -hmm. that for me was a way that I sort of was able to feel like I could teach myself to process what was happening. Um, and also a shout out for therapy. I'm a big proponent of therapy and that was a part of my healing and I recommend it to everyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. we do too. As do we. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think a part too that I, I think there's no way it didn't help you is your sense of humor. Like you are hilarious. <laughs> I felt like I wanted to go to have a glass of wine with you right when I read. So I'm like, can we hang out with her? Like, is this actually going to happen? And so, I mean, there's a point where Courtney is about to go in to get, <laughs> to have surgery and she's literally thinking about worst case scenarios because mm-hmm. you need to. And she comes back out and her friends are there and she's like, who are you guys again? What's your name again? And she's messing with them. <laughs> I'm like, what? That's a sick, funny joke. <laughs> well, like you can't read it and not laugh. I know <laughs> that I can't not think about your friends. And I'm like, are you serious? I yeah. got some of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Just it's weaved into the whole book. I mean, you, you don't think that you'd be able to laugh this much in a book about brain cancer, but it's just, it's got the lowest lows, the highest highs, and mm-hmm. just you're laughing half the time. Mm. Yeah. And Brooke, as you said, and one, one of my favorite quotes from a Buddhist monk and teacher, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, is about the idea of you can't have one without the other, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have a right side without a left side. You can't have happiness without suffering. You can't have laughing without crying. I mean, they come together, right? And they, those emotions are, you need both for the other one to be what it is. Yeah. It's <laughs> so true. And I think it takes grace too, right? Like you're saying, you know why you're feeling this emotions because you did just have this huge insult to your brain. Mm-hmm. But then also kind of that checking yourself and being mindful and figuring out these ways that are going to help you. Mm-hmm. Just like we preach in every episode, it's different for everyone. Your way of meditating is different than a lot of people's and it should be because it feels right for you. Right. Um, so I'm curious though, when you are in these dark moments, what are you telling yourself? Like, do you have some go-to sayings or anything that kind of you act as like you're flipping a switch to like, nope, let's, let's check myself. How do you check yourself? That's a great, that's a great question. And I think I'll tie that to the idea of compassion, Mm -hmm. which is maybe a weird answer to that. But what I mean by it is, so the word compassion literally means to suffer with someone else. And that, once I learned that was such a key in how I handled my own situation is that, you know, if we realize that suffering is universal, right? And I, none of us like to think about suffering <laughs> and it happens in every form and it happens when we least expect it. But every single one of us is suffering somehow or will be at some point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're able to see and acknowledge the suffering in others, our own suffering becomes so much less important, right? I'm, I'm going through something and I'm not alone in that. And one thing that I say and that I write about is that I used to have shame in my suffering, I've had clinical depression before all of this happened. I was going through a divorce. I was going through tough times in my life, and I was ashamed of that. I didn't see a therapist. I didn't tell anyone about it, and I was very alone. One of my takeaways was you should not ever have shame in your suffering because suffering is something we all experience. So that was that was a key for me. Yeah, we just talked about it on our last episode. It has me thinking about the asking for help and not feeling like you're a burden. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's something... 
and maybe it's being type A and thinking that we can handle it all and control everything and and being go, 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 and this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. But there's also power in expressing how you're feeling and knowing that it's okay to feel that way and you don't have to feel that way alone. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of courage, which is scary. Yes. So along kind of with compassion, another thing that um, I practiced myself that was really helpful is a type of meditation called Tonglen meditation, which is essentially, and I'm no expert on this, but you think about other people's suffering. And like when you breathe in, you think I'm trying to take away someone's suffering. And you can picture one person, you can picture a community of people. I mean, there's been, unfortunately, plenty of tragedy that we can think Mm -hmm. about this last year. And we can sort of imagine that you're breathing in their suffering. And when you breathe out, you imagine that you're giving them your happiness and your joy. And I think that's actually a really powerful mind game for me. I mean, you know, who knows if that's doing anything. We Science can't measure that yet, right? Mm-hmm. Positive thoughts. Right. But hey, it's not hurting anyone. And yeah. it's, uh, I think, just that idea of remembering that there is all of that suffering going on and that you still have joy and happiness that you can give, even if it's just in your own mind, right? But mm-hmm. that that's a powerful tool. Yeah. And thinking outside of yourself, mm-hmm. exactly like you're saying. Mm-hmm. You have a gift with that where... Anytime you're reading it, you're like, how is she so positive? How is she able to do that? And I'm glad that you talked of an actual practice of how to do that. But man, a lot of people get through their life and don't ever learn that skill or even hear of it. This is another question I have for you. I would imagine it would be hard to walk through life now and hear people complaining. (laughs) About the dumbest shit, like, <laughs> like someone screaming because their whatever at their hotel isn't perfect or their food is too cold or whatever. Uh-huh. Like, how do you deal with people's bullshit yeah. after all <laughs> that you've been through? Uh, yeah, um, yes, <laughs> I can, I can relate to that question. Yes, and there are times when I find myself getting frustrated mm-hmm. when I hear people, yeah, complaining about things. Like I won't, I couldn't forget. And I think something that even comes up in the book or in a blog, I don't remember where I wrote it. But when I first went back to practicing medicine Mm -hmm. after being away after some of my illness, I had a patient come in and just start to complain about old age. She's like, oh, you wouldn't know, but I have all, you know, my back hurts. I have all these wrinkles. I have all these gray hairs. And she's just complaining about it. And all I could think was, oh my God, I would be so lucky to live long enough to have a gray hair or a wrinkle. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine like that would be um, incredible. Learning that you're dying is um, something that teaches you a lot, right? And I think back, if anyone has read, shout out for the book, Tuesdays with Maury. Yes. Right. Very powerful book. It's right here. Oh, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Staring at you. I didn't even notice that. (laughs) But yes, um, another great book that I actually didn't read, I'm ashamed to say, up until about a week ago. Oh, really? It's that idea that these are such important lessons, but they're somewhat impossible to teach. We can talk about it, but there's something about actually learning that you yourself are mortal Mm -hmm. that teaches you a lesson that no one can really give you. Yeah. When I was young, when I was in high school, I lost two friends within like six months of each other. And I'm married to my husband who hadn't had, until we were dating, like hadn't even lost a family member yet. Mm -hmm. And I have these moments sometimes where I panic thinking about how I'm mortal Mm -hmm. and how Life will go on when I'm gone. And I, I lose my mind for like five minutes or 10 minutes. And he just couldn't grasp it then. I mean, yeah. now he's had loss and, it, and it's, he's had moments where it, he's learning about it, unfortunately. Right. But I call my sister-in-law Alicia because she's had some tragic losses in her life. And mm-hmm. she's like, 
this is going to pass. Mm-hmm. Then we talk each other through like, it's good that you feel this way mm-hmm. because you're going to live life fuller, Andrea. Like she talks me like off the me, we're all going to die. <laughs> like losing my mind. And because she, she does it too. We take turns, mm-hmm. but it's a gift because we're cheesy in these moments, capturing pictures and, you know, I'm making these books to remember these moments because I'm like, this is what it's about. Yes. So it's like, you do have to go through the shit yes. to have this beautiful moment and actually be grateful for it. 100%. And, yeah. I think it's this concept of if you forget that you will die, you also forget how to live. Yes. Yeah. And it's like our society is mindless mm-hmm. and it's the opposite of what you're talking about. Like you're sitting with your brother and sister-in-law mm-hmm. eating breakfast and it's like the best moment ever. Mm-hmm. And you can feel it. You can feel mm-hmm. that like you have a new sense of what's really important. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about hardships, right. And talking about your struggles, it's good and it's healthy. And then I also think about the comparison mm-hmm. and thinking about sharing my suffering and how it's important to acknowledge the space that you're in. And I think about like my health journey and things that I'm dealing with. And then I think, okay, well, I don't have cancer Mm -hmm. and I don't have, I I go into the hospital, right? And I get negative, 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 negative. And Mm -hmm. part of me just wants them to find something. Mm -hmm. So it's this peace of mind, this answer. But then I hear your story and I'm like, no, I don't. Like, why, why, why would you wish that? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious your thoughts on the comparison Mm -hmm. and just how you feel hearing that. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, completely natural to Mm -hmm. compare. And, and I'll say that I'm not immune to that either. I mean, I, now I know I mentioned earlier that I, for a time, we didn't know what grade of cancer I had. Mm -hmm. I now know I have grade three and not grade four and Mm. that it's responded very well to treatment. And so I compare all the time. I think, why was I so lucky to get grade three and to not have grade four? You know, why do I have genetic markers that make my tumor more responsive to treatment than other people? Why am I still alive when so many people with my diagnosis are not? So I think that it's, um, we all compare and there's sort of that survivor's guilt, so to speak, in Mm -hmm. many ways. But I also want to go back to the thought that um, no matter what suffering we're personally going through, whether it's a diagnosis of a physical illness, a mental illness, you know, whatever hardship you're facing, I mean, compare or not, those are all valid, right? And they're all actually very similar. And so when I write this this book, really the message I want to get across is that we all go through challenges when we least expect or want them, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to all learn how to face them. It doesn't really matter what that challenge is. How we react to it is everything. Well, you definitely completed your job. You delivered that message beautifully in your book. Thank you. Yeah. And going off that, another quote that has stuck with me, you say, When you think about it, the life cycle of a human typically consists of four major events. We are born, face challenges, learn something, and die. I'm currently somewhere along the spectrum between birth and death, and I hate to remind you all, but so are you. That's true. (laughs) It's It's so simple, but it's so true, and we don't like to think about that. Yeah. But I think that's important to acknowledge, like, why is it so hard to, to accept it? Like, why does... Why do the people in Thailand accept it and live these fuller, more meaningful lives, probably simpler too, and we can't? Mm-hmm. Like, what, do you have any thoughts on that? That's a hard question. I think, I think part of it, I mean, I will say I think part of it is 
I mean, definitely cultural. Part of it is spiritual. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, as I mentioned before, Buddhism is, you know, it's a, it's a major religion in a lot of Asian countries, but it's also just a way of life, a different way of viewing life and a way of viewing life in that it goes on and that what we're doing in this lifetime is not a concrete, you know, you're born, you die, and then it's over. It's viewed much more as a continuum, right? And so I think that there's just an acceptance in a lot of other cultures that what we're going through right now is a tiny, tiny speck of what we will go through. And I find that beautiful. And I think of it actually like a scientist more than I think about it on a religious term. I think of like, we think of energy. Ener- I'm going to get a little nerdy here on <laughs> please, my science, please do. Right, Energy can't be created and it can't be destroyed. Energy just transforms into another mm-hmm. form of energy. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at life, right? We, um, who knows, who knows what happens after we die. Um, but I think it does actually, it gives me a lot of hope personally to think that what I'm going through now, if I can make the most of this life that I'm living right now and help others in some way, I've succeeded in this life. And this is just one small spot of energy on a whole lot of energy I have left to give. Again, doing your job. (laughs) That is such a beautiful thought. And I, what I keep getting curious about is prior to Thailand and, and how you're able to think so quickly and flip your brain into this positive mindset or gratitude or whatever it is. It's like magic. But I'm wondering, like, do you think you had practices that you were doing or ways of thinking before Thailand that kind of helped you with all of this news and diagnosis? Like, do you think that that there's anything you were doing that helped you up to that point? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, yes, and I'll answer it in two ways. I think first, sort of the non-medical side of my life. I mean, even before Thailand, I was always interested in meditation. I Mm -hmm. practiced yoga for years. I think I always had an interest in kind of this idea that we can, in a way, train our mind to be calm, even in tough circumstances. And I've been working on that through my own experience with depression and anxiety in the past, even before anything happened in Thailand. So that, I think, was one piece of it. The second piece is more related to my medical training. I'm an internal medicine physician, and so we get training in a lot of different specialties. But one thing I've always been passionate about is the subspecialty of palliative care, which essentially focuses on treating patients' symptoms. Often people think about palliative care associated with hospice care or end-of-life care, and there are components of that in palliative medicine. But the biggest piece of palliative medicine is that it's about this idea that we want to make you have a good quality of life, even if the quantity is less than what you anticipate. And I think that's beautiful. And I try to practice medicine with that way. I mean, of course, I, if a patient wants years over, you know, quantity over quality, I go with what my patient wants. But my, you know, I often like to at least talk about this idea of, you know, really, do you want to focus on quality? Because we can do things that make you comfortable. And so I think having that interest in my own career and in the way mm-hmm. I practice medicine made it easier for me in my own personal health crisis to say, well, what's important to me is quality and to live, you know, my best life as comfortable for as long as I can. But, but really, if it's shorter than I expect, but it's a good one, I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can imagine being the patient yourself and then transitioning back into the visit- physician side of things, the care that you provide your patients it's got to be different now that you yes. know what they're going through. Uh, you have in your book, you say, 
you know, you make this promise of I'm going to spend, even if it's just a few more minutes with them to hear them out, to be with them. And as someone who's seen a lot of doctors, I appreciate that. And it's again, this difficult gift of, I hear you, I see you, I know what you're going through. So how has that changed for you? Such a good question. And it's changed so many things for me and how I practice medicine. I think that I have learned things that no amount of medical training could ever have taught me. And being a patient is hard and it is Mm -hmm. scary, right? And you lose so much of your autonomy and your freedom. And it's, uh, I I had to be a patient myself to understand that truly. Um, And I think that the other piece of it is, you know, when I started to share my story, I was worried at first, we're sort of often taught in a way to sort of almost suppress a lot of our own personal emotions and our personal thoughts in medicine. I know a lot of other doctors have written about that topic recently in the field of, you know, how we are training our medical providers Mm -hmm. and how important it is to really teach empathy and compassion, not just medicine and science. Um, And I think that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But it's a hard thing to teach. And so I remember, you know, starting off and after being a patient myself, I thought, can I be so open about this? Can I write a blog and a book or even share this with my patients? Like, would that be helpful or would that make people wary of me as their doctor? And I have learned, I've slowly started to, I mean, obviously the book is out so people can see the story and read mm-hmm. the story, but I've also started to tell some select patients, you know, while I'm working with them, if it's relevant, I won't hide my story. I'll say, I, I can relate to you and I do know what you're going through, mm-hmm. which is something I couldn't say before. And it completely changes the dynamic. And I think, you know, I've learned, I've been pleasantly surprised to learn that a lot of patients really appreciate that mm-hmm. they're not scared that their doctor has been through it own health crisis. They, I think, uh, can see that I truly know what it's like to be in their shoes and I'm going to work my best to make it an okay experience for them. Man, I want you to be my doctor. (laughs) So something that Brooke and I talk a lot about is Ivy. And we talk about growing even when it's hard or growing is hard. Learning about things that you struggle with and owning your mistakes and things and, and growing is tough work. And so that's why we have Ivy as part of our name. And then you write in your book and have a picture of a lotus. And I just feel like anybody can relate to that where even if it's a lot of mud, (laughs) which you've had a lot of mud, that the lotus can grow there. And so I just, I love that illustration. And I think that now when I look at this picture, it means so much more. You know, before I was like, oh, it's pretty. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, oh. But I just want to thank you for the gift of this book. I mean, I could just cry. I, I want to buy 15 of them so I can just pass them to all of my friends. And you talk about your mission in the book and you say that you want people to say about you that she took her suffering and realized she could use it to find and spread joy. And I just want you to know that you have completely fulfilled that mission. Thank you. you are spreading joy. And this book is going to change so many people's lives. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> And going off of the lotus idea, you have a quote where you say, when life piles on the mud, let's grow our own damn flowers from it. And (laughs) this book is one of those flowers. A hundred percent. It's changed both of our lives. Yes. So thank you. And it's been such a gift, even though it's been a difficult gift for you. It's it's been a gift and you are so special. This book is so special. We're going to keep it handy for any time. We need that reminder 
I hate uh, that you're wrapping up. I feel like we're wrapping up, but I don't want her to go. But we, we do need to be mindful of your time and our listeners' time. And so we just want to thank you so much for being here. And so for our listeners who want more of you, where could they find you? Oh, absolutely. And and thank you again. I mean, just hearing what you guys have said is so touching and means a lot to me that my words could impact anyone in even a small way, let alone a big way. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Um, but yes, where to find me? So I do have a blog, as I've mentioned, and I do keep writing the blog. So if you read the book, Difficult Gifts, and you like it and want to know what's happened since, I keep an updated blog regularly. Um, the website is an easy one to remember, elephantlotusbraintumor.com. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> so uh, that's, yep, that's the blog. And you can find my email on there. You can find links to my, you know, I'm active on social media. On Instagram, I, I'm probably the most active there. It's um, at Courtney... Jay Burnett. Burnett. <laughs> Thank you. Forgot my own Instagram account. Yes, at Courtney J. Burnett. Um, you can send me a message there. I love to hear your thoughts and love to connect with lots of people. So Yeah, and we want you guys to be able to find her. So we'll plug all of this in our blog. And also remember, you can use all of our resources. We plug them for free on our blog, in our newsletter, on all of our social channels at Gold Ivy Health Co. So don't hesitate to subscribe and never miss an episode. Perfect. And I want to say one last shout out for people who are maybe interested in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to say, you know, as I mentioned before, brain cancer is really an understudied, sort of underfunded condition. And so I am donating a portion of my profits to brain cancer research foundations and patient care networks. So you can purchase the book. Um, it's all over. It's on Amazon at your local bookstore. But also if you purchase directly from my blog, the highest um, portion of sales will go to donations. That's awesome. And now it's time for our three gold stars. Excellent. So our three gold stars. So three kind of big takeaways that I'd like to share with everyone. First is this idea of mindfulness and how we can practice mindfulness without being in a formal meditation center, right? We can just think of our mind as the sky and it's clear. And as you have thoughts or you have difficulties that are passing by, think of them as clouds that will come in and out and just remember Find a way to appreciate the moment and know that that clear sky is always there underneath. The second key takeaway I want to point out is about the idea of suffering and compassion, which in my mind are very much related. And how when we have compassion for ourselves, but more importantly, compassion for other people, we suffer with them. We acknowledge that everyone is suffering. We are not so alone. And our own suffering becomes so much less important. And I think... With that in mind, I also, again, want to reiterate that there is no shame in suffering, and I think you should never feel alone in your suffering. The third key is um, uh, simply, uh, well, finding joy, but also the idea of death. <laughs> and, and as much as those seem to be opposites, <laughs> I, in my mind, they go together. And really, this takeaway is, is that life advice that the monk told me, right? Smile, do not cry. If you remember that illness and death are a natural part of life, you can find joy and you can remember that everything happens for a reason. So beautiful. And next is Unleashing Ivy, which you chose to completely have this be a surprise. Uh So I'm so excited (laughs) to hear what you have to say. So Unleashing Ivy, first question, Courtney, what's your go-to mindfulness practice? Oh, for me, it's reciting a mantra. Mm. So as simple as I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. Literally that simple. But saying something while I'm doing the dishes, something I do every day. (laughs) Do you have a go-to mantra that you say? Yeah, I usually actually say one that a little longer than that. But Mm -hmm. I say, um, may all beings be free from suffering. May all beings have physical wellness. May all beings have mental wellness. 
That's it. Three lines are repeated over and over in my head while I'm washing dishes or going on a walk. I love that so much. All right. Second question. What's one thing you do to snap yourself out of a negative mindset? Mm. Laugh, right? Find someone, turn on a funny episode, read your favorite book, whatever. Just smile and laugh and you'll forget about it soon enough. Yeah. (laughs) So true. Love it. And our favorite one. What's one thing you wish you would have known sooner? Mm. You know, I, I, I think I'm going to say nothing um, because mm-hmm. I think that you learn everything when it's the right time for you to learn it. And some things, some lessons come, um, I think they come exactly when they're supposed to come. God, I love that so much. <laughs> no, <me> too. <laughs> Please don't stop talking. <laughs> All right. And as always, we'd like to leave you with a piece of gold. Thank you. So I'll read a, just a short quote from Difficult Gifts. This is just in the prologue, so it's not giving too many spoilers away. <laughs> Through dying, I have learned to live. Through sadness, I have found happiness. Through the loss of the guaranteed future I once envisioned, I have found peace and freedom. I am more alive today than I have ever been. This is Gold Ivy signing off. Listen to your truth and go chase your gold.